0: weeks ago since we got interrupted by this snowstorm. We finished up Isaiah 63. It is my hope to get about halfway through Isaiah 65 tonight, and then we'll finish up Isaiah next time. If things go really fast and we get to halfway, we'll just quit because I'm not prepared to go any farther. So in Isaiah 63, I want to pick it up in verse 17. And that'll give us a run into Isaiah 64. So Isaiah 63:17. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled like those who are not called by your name. This is obviously a cry from exile. And as you remember, Isaiah is written just before and during the Assyrian invasion, where the northern kingdom is chopped down. So at the time Isaiah is writing, there isn't anybody necessarily in exile. And certainly they have not become the 10 lost tribes. That process takes longer than that. So what Isaiah is doing is writing about what I'm inferring here are the 10 lost tribes before they become the 10 lost tribes. And he's talking about them from so far away in time. They're also far away in distance, but mostly in time. And In verse 17, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? So the idea here is that as a part of the process of exile, they are going to have their hearts hardened so they will lose track of who they are. In other words, they will lose track of the fact that they're Israelites. And then in verse 19, we have become like those over whom you have never ruled like those who are not called by your name. The idea is the process of exile has sent these folks so far away, both in space and in time, that they have completely lost track of the fact that they were at one time Israelites. And as I said last time, this is a two-house congregation. So this congregation believes that there is Israel out there somewhere, that doesn't know that it's Israel. They may be Baptists or Presbyterians or whatever, and they're out there and they have no idea that they are, in fact, descendants of Israel. And so this sort of feels like a rhetorical cry from exile in the future. So now, as we go into 64, I'm going to pick it up at verse 63:19, and then just read down into 64, because the whole thing flows. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when the fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble in your presence. Now, it reads and it flows like it might be part of the previous thought, but the other part of that is these are people in the previous thought who are crying out from exile and they have lost their identity as Israelites. So for them to be calling on him to come down as obviously metaphorically he came down on Sinai, for him to do that again, I'm not sure that it's the same thought, but it very well might be, because again, this cry from exile is a cry to Jehovah. So that cry could certainly remember the events at Sinai. In 63, other than sorrow at having lost their identity, there isn't any of the, gee, we are under oppression here, and we're suffering mightily, come down and rescue us. That isn't the thought at the end of 63. The thought at the end of 63 is we've become some other people rather than who we really are, whereas in 64 it's a cry for God to show himself powerful to the nations. Verse 3, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. So the idea of Jehovah God doing things that they did not look for, again, we're talking Sinai at that point. They were gathered around the mountain, but they didn't know what was going to happen. And the fact that Moses led them out there and assembled them around the mountain, they had seen the plagues, and certainly they had the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of vapor by day. So they knew the presence of God, but standing at the foot of the mountain, They didn't know what to expect until it happened. So I see this first part of Isaiah 64 as calling back to the events of Sinai. So verse 5. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So, one of the things obviously that goes on throughout the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel all of them talk about the fact that exile is a consequence of sin and going after other gods and falling into violence. So, this is certainly akin to that. If this is all of one piece, this cry. For the presence of God acknowledges that they are where they are because of their own malfeasance. Now, this verse 6, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That gets quoted all the time, and I will suggest that it gets misquoted and misused by much of the Sunday church. And the idea, as it is used today, is you can't please God by your behavior. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, and much of the Sunday church has put the Torah away and has given up trying to walk in the ways of the Torah because they see that as not a wasted effort, but as an attempt to deny the grace of God by substituting works righteousness for the gift of righteousness. And this is one of the poster scriptures that is used to justify that behavior. And this is talking about Israel who has fallen to such a state that God has seen fit to exile them. God is very long-suffering. And you read in the prophets, over and over, it says, put aside your ways, get rid of your idols, start doing justice and pursuing righteousness, and everything will be fine. God says this over and over. So the idea that God isn't impressed by your good behavior and your good works is not scriptural. He is impressed by that. In other words, he wants you to walk in his ways. He wants you to do the things that he told you to do. He wants you to be obedient to his word. And your attempts to do that will, of course, be imperfect. But if you are trying to do that with a good heart, he can figure it out. And the grace of God will cover your lapses. The problem that was going on at the time of Christ, which is obviously when most of the New Testament was written, The Pharisees had come back from the Babylonian exile. So the Pharisees had the benefit of the books of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Amos, all those things. And they all understood, boy, you went into exile because of idolatry and and not doing the things of God. Okay, we're back in the land. So we are going to punctiliously tithe mint and cumin. I mean, we are going to do the law to a T. And what Yeshua says to them when he goes through them, he says, guys, you're doing the form of religion, but in fact, your business practices and your social practices are oppressive and violent. Matthew 23, 23. This is Yeshua speaking. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So he doesn't give them an excuse to say, all right, the tithing and all that stuff is unimportant. You can drop that. Come on over here and do this important stuff. He says, it's all important. So the idea that God is indifferent or even vaguely hostile to trying to walk according to Torah is nonsense. It isn't true. And this passage is used of Israel who has gone into exile, and the reason they've gone into exile is because of idol worship, injustice, violence, oppression, sharp dealing, all of those things that, with the exception of idolatry, wind up getting the generation of Yeshua sent into exile also. So as I say, I think the Sunday church misuses that passage of scripture to excuse a neglect of the Torah. I'm not preaching against grace at all. Grace is the thing that caused him to send Yeshua. Grace is the thing that allows Yeshua's blood to cover our sins. That's all true. But the wicked will still exist. One of the things that happens at the great white throne is the books are open and everybody's judged according to his works. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Works matter. They're important. I completely agree that it is by the grace of God we are saved. And the only point of this whole riff is my disagreement with much of the Sunday church which says that the Torah is done away with and that doesn't matter anymore what matters now is grace so verse six again now we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away So, what takes them away? Their iniquities take them away. Whose fault is it that they got taken away? Their own fault. Because remember back in the Torah, in Deuteronomy, the Song of Moses? One of the reasons for the Song of Moses is that God tells Moses that a time is going to come when they're going to fall away from me and I am going to bring disaster upon them. And the thing they're going to do is they're going to whine at me and say, this wouldn't have happened if you had been faithful, God. God, you've been unfaithful. Well, God hasn't been unfaithful. God is simply following his covenant. What is being acknowledged here in Isaiah are these people who are in exile, acknowledging the fact that they have been swept away because of their own iniquities. They've come off of this God If you'd been here, we wouldn't have had this trouble. If you'd been with us like you said you would, this wouldn't have happened. What God says in Deuteronomy before the Song of Moses is they're going to say that. And what this song is going to do is going to explain to them that they're wrong. Verse 7, There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us. You have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. So what I just said is he is not there for them to take hold of because he has turned his face away from them. And the reason he's turned his face away from them is because of their iniquities. And they are acknowledging that he is not there for them to take hold of, but it's their own fault that he's not there for them to take hold of. Verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. And by the way, we see this in, I believe, Romans, where Paul is talking about a potter, and he makes one for honorable use and the other for dishonorable use. And the example I would use is one piece of clay gets made into a chamber pot, and the other piece of clay gets made into a beautiful vase to hold flowers. The chunk of clay that gets made into a chamber pot may not like looking up at people's backsides, but it is still a useful vessel, even though it is made for dishonor, quote, unquote. One of the things that we have in the United States, and I talked about this last time I gave a sermon, is we've lost the idea of place, which is to say you are born into a time and a place and a situation. And in the United States, we say, doesn't matter what you were born, you can become the president. Well, no, you can't and certainly the idea of social mobility is a good thing not arguing about that but what it comes from is uh, jefferson was a very strong anti-aristocrat one of my favorite quotes of his is it is not the case that some men were born with saddles and others were born with boots and spurs to ride them which is a s- statement against hereditary aristocracy so on the one hand aristocracy can ossify and become very rigid and corrupt, but the other end, no structure is where we are now, where from day to day people aren't sure whether they're boys or girls. Those are two ends of a spectrum and what we have lost now at this end of the spectrum is this idea of place, that you're born into a society, you have a role, You have a place, you have a function to perform, and yeah, you may go up or down, but you still have a place within society. We've lost that. And what is being said with the chamber pot example that I just did is God makes each of us and he puts us into a place. And within that, we have quite a bit of freedom of moving around what we do, going up and down, those kinds of things. But the fact that you were made a woman If you decide you don't like that tough beans you're still a woman regardless of what the trannies say the biblical example is doesn't matter what you want if your daddy wasn't a priest you can't be a priest it's just not open to you and as i say there's a spectrum there and when the united states was formed we were over on the aristocratic rigidity side And we rebelled against that, and we sort of moved back to the middle, but now we have slammed over against the other stop, and nobody knows what he is anymore. And that's not good either. There's a place in between. And what this clay example that Paul is saying is, some of you are going to be made as chamber pots. Some of you are going to be made as vases for flowers. Don't complain. The potter gets to do what he wants to with the clay. That's the lesson. So verse 8 again. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not our iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Remember, we started off at the end of 63 with we have forgotten who we are. We once were your people, but you have caused us to lose that. And now what he's saying to God is, look at us and remember that we are your people. Verse 10, your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Your holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire. All our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? I will remind you that Isaiah is writing some hundred years before the destruction of Jerusalem. So he is writing not only to the destruction of Jerusalem, but past the destruction of Jerusalem when Israel remembers in exile who they are and they call out to God. This is, in some cases, at least two centuries after Isaiah's life. Now, here we have a change of voice. In 63 and 64, it was exiles calling out to God. In 65, it is God responding. So, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation that was not called by my name. The idea there is God is spring-loaded in the if you seek me, I will respond mode, which is different than if you seek me, I have turned my face because you are in your iniquities and you smell like dirty diapers. By a nation not called by my name, not sure what that is, it could be Israel in exile who has lost its identity. Or the other thing it could be is a la Romans, where Paul says that the natural branches were broken off so that you who were a wild vine could be grafted in. It could be either sense. I just don't know right off the top of my head. Verse 2 I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way. That is not good, following their own devices. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. Everybody understand making offerings on bricks? Altars to God are to be made out of natural, undressed stone that no tool has come upon. So the idea of making an offering on bricks, which is the ultimate man made substitute for stone is an abomination so the idea here is these people are provoking him and he says specifically people that provoke me to my face these are people who are in the land know better and are doing what they are doing despite knowing better this is not an ignorant sin this is a deliberate in your face sin. Pick it up, verse 3 again. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh, and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. People who eat pig's flesh, in other words, don't follow the dietary laws. People who spend the night in secret places and sit in tombs. Well, one of the things that happens when you sit in a tomb is you become tamai, unclean. Remember at the trial of Yeshua that the Jews would not go into Pilate's house. And the reason they wouldn't go into Pilate's house is that it would have made them ritually unclean and they would not have been able to eat the Passover. That's what it says. So the idea of sitting in a tomb, much less going into a Gentile's house, is again one of these in your face, I don't care about your laws, I don't care what it takes to be holy in your presence, I'm not going to do any of that. Same thing with eating bacon. And then people who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. That I don't understand. Unless they have gone completely over into paganism, one of the things that was kind of a thing in the 60s and 70s is people would go chase after Eastern religions, and they were seeking a sense of holiness, but not from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they were doing their mmm and all that kind of stuff, and they were thinking themselves holy. That may be what's being spoken of here. So again, verse 5, Who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their bosom, both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their bosom payment for their former deeds. Now, this in verse 6 and 7 makes sense because God himself is long-suffering. God puts up with a whole lot of idolatry before he finally whistles up an empire and sends them into exile. The first person that put up an idol you didn't have a bunch of big, hairy Assyrians at the gates the next day. It takes decades before God finally has had enough and deals with that society, which means that he not only deals with the ones who are alive when he finally has had enough, but it's the accumulation of their fathers and their father's fathers before them who have brought them to the point where he finally takes action. So the fact is, he deals with all of that in a swoop. But the Assyrians land on the ones who are alive. So the idea of measuring to their bosom payment for their former deeds. The rot started generations before, and it's only now that it has risen to the state where God takes action, which means that the people who are destroyed by the Assyrians didn't do all of the stuff that got them there all by themselves. They had generations before them accumulating stuff that they are the heirs to. Verse 8. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it, so I will do for my servants' sake and not destroy them all. I will bring forth offspring from Jacob and from Judah possessors of my mountains. My children shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. As the new wine is found in the cluster, what they're talking about there is you have a vine that in the spring starts to bud, and you've got these little tiny ones. The new wine is in there, but it isn't going to show up until the harvest. The idea here in this metaphor There is wine to be had out of Jacob. But right now, that wine is in the cluster, which is to say it is in the exiles who are being chastised for their unfaithfulness. But the seeds of the future redemption of people who will eventually call out to my name is in that people. Verse 10. Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Acor a place for herds to lie down, for my people who have sought me. Starting back in 63, we were talking about people in exile who have called out to God. So, with Sharon becoming a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Acor a place for herds to lie down, for my people who have sought me. So, what we're talking about is a remnant, if you will, or people who are in exile, who finally recognize, okay, we're here because of our own iniquities. We and our parents deserve to be here. And now we're going to turn and call out to God. And those are the ones who are going to be brought back. Verse 11. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword and all of you will bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I do not delight in. Back up here for a second. The first ones were the ones that call out to him from exile. Those are going to wind up in Sharon. However, the ones who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. So in Leviticus 26, one of the things that happens that causes God to send Israel into exile is they ascribe the works of God to chance, mother nature, or actuarial tables, or whatever. In other words, they don't see the hand of God in stuff. They see fortune or chance. So here in Isaiah, when he says those who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny... What he's talking about there is people who have ceased to give glory to God for the things that happen. They've instead ascribed everything that happens to chance or randomness or whatever. So what they're doing is they are setting a table for fortune and they fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, which means that they are worshiping chance. Can anybody see evolution? So the idea that all of this is somehow simply a product of random chance is what is being spoken of here in isaiah and he's saying those who set the table for fortune and mix a cup of wine for destiny those are not going to come back and they are not going to be in sharon because those people tick me off that's what he's saying there i think i'm gonna quit Would someone like to close in prayer